This episode is brought to you by The Sinner. From executive producer Jessica Beale, The Sinner is a limited series event that begins with an unsettling and heart-wrenching crime, parents murdered by their young son. But the sins of a child are never his alone, and beneath the surface of a seemingly normal small town lie very dark secrets. You will know who, you will know how, you won't believe why. Bill Pullman, Carrie Coon, and Tracy Letts star. The Sinner airs Wednesdays at 10, 9 central on USA Network. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Fall TV Preview Edition. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. For the next few weeks, we are going to be covering different shows one week at a time, just sort of, you know, taking a little overview of some of the fall TV that we're excited about, whether it's returning shows or new shows. This week, we decided to talk about season two of American Vandal. But to be honest with you, uh, there were many, many options for us to choose from this week. Netflix alone is dropping like five different shows today. So, um, you know, I guess the purpose, one of the purposes of the show is like, what of all my billion options should I be watching? And uh, Richard, do you want to start with just sort of a brief overview of why American Vandal over any other show? Uh, yeah, because surprisingly, it's one of my like favorite shows that's premiered in the past few years. Uh, when I first heard about the premise of the first season was, you know, kind of making fun of making a murder and serial and all these kind of true crime podcasts or, t- or you know, TV specials. Um, but the premise was like, oh, like somebody drew a bunch of dicks like on faculty cars in, in the parking lot of a high school. And I was like, oh, that just seems like an excuse for like, you know, kind of bro humor, whatever. Like it feels very lowbrow. And then I, you know, then people watched it and liked it. And I was like, I couldn't kind of believe that people, especially women were like, oh, it's really good. And then so I finally gave it a shot and it's great. It's so clever the parody is so spot on there's a real kind of rich humanity to it which is really surprising um and it's beautifully acted so um you know i I devoured the first season and now that season two is here with a whole new case a whole new mystery um i was like oh maybe it's not gonna you know maybe it was lightning in a bottle you can't do it twice i was wrong i think it's great i think season two what i've seen of it is really wonderful yeah, so we have an, uh, an interview this week with Tyler Alvarez, who's one of the only cast members to repeat from season one to season two. Um, he plays intrepid teen detective Peter Maldonado. Uh, Griffin Gluck, who's his partner, Sam Eklund, is the also the only repeating cast member. Were you worried that without like um, Jimmy Tatro, who was like third lead in season one, or without any of those cast members back again, uh, were you worried that you wouldn't be able to get as invested in season season two Richard well yeah just because those characters Jimmy Tetris in, in, in particular were just so well drawn and you know you came to kind of love most of them by the end I mean I think even like in as much as there was of any sort of villainous character last season even they sort of had this you know just sort of like decency to them so yeah you get invested but um so that was absolutely concerned but they figured it out you know they, they've once again cast kids who feel like real kids uh, it almost feels like, you know, they just went to an actual high school. Uh, I don't know where they found these kids, but, um, you know, so they, they, they solved the problem by, um, 
you know, basically just doing the same thing they did just with different people. So season two takes place. Um, you know, we should say that they did some clever bit of premising here. Um, we're not going to spoil the whole season at all. You won't, you won't know who done it, uh, by the end of this podcast. Uh, but we did want to sort of set up some, uh, of the premise, which is that season two in season one, you know, these two teens did this like, uh, serial esque or jinx esque, uh, docu series about someone who had drawn dicks at their high school. And in between seasons, what we find out as season two kicks off is that Netflix within the world of the show, the streaming platform Netflix, uh, has picked up the show and give it a, a little bit of gloss. And the cre- I talked to the creators for a piece that's up on VanityFair.com about how this was their plan all along was to do this sort of like meta Netflix is uh, broadcasting the show now, um, which explains how they got like some of the drone shots in season one and stuff like that. And they said they were like really annoyed that some of the criticism was like, you know, how could it look so good? And they're like, Oh, we have a plan. Just hold on. We'll, we'll unveil it in season two. Um, and so with that increased budget and increased, uh, you know, better equipment and all that sort of stuff, um, our, you know, teen documentarian and Peter and Sam wind up going to a different school, not their school, but a different school, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, a, a Catholic school. And here the, the crime last season was drawing, like vandalizing with, uh, dicks. The, the crime this season is a, is a scatological like. prankster. So that's what's happening. New cast members include uh, Taylor Dearden, who I loved on the MTV series Sweet Vicious as Chloe, who's sort of hosting the guys. Um, Travis Tope as Kevin McLean, who's our main prime prime suspect this season. Uh, Melvin Gregg as Demarcus Tillman, who is, um, you know, the star athlete at the school. And then Daron Horton, who I know uh, we know from... Um, Dear white people as Luke Carter, sort of his, his sidekick. And those are sort of your four main new kids. And then just like a whole cast of new, of new characters, new teachers, a, a nun, uh, some other things. So, um, the, the thing that I like about this season so much centers on Kevin, who is our prime suspect. In season one, Jimmy Tatro plays this sort of like dumb, bro that by the end of the season you wind up having a remarkable amount of like sympathy and empathy for in in this season the creators told me that they wanted to try to find someone that was much harder to root for and make you root for them anyway so what do you think of this uh of kevin who is a sort of like fussy over enunciates his words makes youtube videos about tea uh kind of kid what did you think of this richard I think it's so well drawn, you know, like I knew kids like that, Mm -hmm. you know, who, um, you you know, and as the season goes on, it's not only as his character developed, but actually how he functions in the ecosystem of his school is sort of further clarified or actually kind of re, you know, viewed from a different angle. Um, so they get some more depth that way, but the performance is great. And, and it's the kind of kid who like, you feel bad for because something about him just makes him sort of alienated from his peers. Yeah. But also that something is really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, you don't, you, you know, it's like that kind of thing where you're like, Oh, I feel bad. He doesn't have friends, but Oh, I'm not going to be his friend. You know? Um, yeah, I was, I was telling the guys, I was like, I knew so many kids like Kevin in high school and they were, they were, elated because they were like we were really worried that that was not going to come across as as, like dylan maxwell from season one is a very recognizable figure and they were really worried that the kevin character was not going to come across that way and for me and for you it sounds like this is a very recognizable high school kid Um, i mean i don't know about you but i mean i spent 
plenty of time doing high school theater. And so (laughs) I know that kid. We're theater. We're theater kids. Exactly right. That's what I was thinking. I was like, this is a lot of guys I knew in high school, actually. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who would grow up to be, you know, or go on to college and be like, you know, the TD of a, of a show, like, or like have a bunch of keys on their, you know, belt loop or whatever. It's that kind of, that kind of kid. How old are the guys who created the show? Um, they are, I think they're in their early thirties. Uh, okay. Like they're like a little younger than us, I think. Cause they have like such a keen grasp on, or, or they have such a keen memory for what high school is like, I think. But also, which I, I do to an extent, or rather I know it when I see it, which I think well, is part of the reason the show works so well, cause it like reminds me, it's sort of, it's like evocative in that way. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that's amazing about what they do with the show is that they have such a keen grasp on like the technology aspect of things and how that would inform kids' lives in a day-to-day way. And it's not alarmist. It's not, you know, it doesn't feel inauthentic. Um, so I don't know that they're just, they're very perceptive people, you know, the guys who made this and write it. Like it's just, from my mind, it just like nails what it might be like to be in high school right now. So a couple things, um, we, uh, Katie Rich and I talked to the guys a little bit more in depth around season one when we did this piece that went up earlier this year about this big, uh, party episode that they did in season one, Nana's party. And when we were talking to them about that, they told us that they watched hours and hours and hours of social media, of YouTube videos, of Instagram videos, of Snapchats. Um, like they would, you know, ask their younger relatives, whether it's siblings or cousins or nephews or whatever, to like show them what the kids are doing, you know, and not from like, when you talk to these guys, they, they are obviously very smart and like very emotionally mature. And I think that comes through in, um, in what they do, but they also don't talk about kids like, um, from an anthropological point of view, you know, like they don't, they're not so smart and so savvy that they're too far emotionally from like kids these days, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think that that's the important thing is there's a great deal of empathy. Yeah. And I think that it's similar to the way that Bo Burnham, um, who wrote and directed a movie that the eighth grade that came out this summer, yeah. it was a hit at Sundance, you know, like that's the key to this, you know, and it doesn't matter what genre you want to go in or what tone necessarily you want to take. As long as you are listening and observing and being fair and not trying to get a rise out of people by sort of sensationalizing anything. And I mean, again, this is a show about, you know, silly dirty pranks you know i mean well the first prank in this is actually kind of medically dangerous like to (laughs) to basically give people laxatives um and that actually kind of raises the stake of the season in an interesting way but um you know what, what you can go you can be silly but i think as long as you understand that kids in a foundational way are the same as when you were kids yes the tools the the kind of whatever might be different but um, you know, I think you see a lot of inauthentic stuff about teens where like, you know, it's just like four well-dressed girls walking down a hallway and being like incredibly cruel. And, you know, I think Ryan Murphy kind of perpetuated that some other MTV shows have done that where it's like, you know, wouldn't it be fun if everyone was sort of like a little adult and it's like, they're not, you know, they're people, but they are kids. And, um, I think this show just understands that and really, in a really touching way, kind of values that, uh, which I think is great. And I think something this season in particular, once again, not to spoil it, 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 it goes a little heavier in the end, in the final episode, a little, trying a little harder to 
underline the message of the season um, via, you know, Peter Maldonado voiceover, which I think was an interesting move that they decided to make. But it, it really highlights the fact that they are trying to make a more um, serious message and examination of the the damage, the advantages of social media, but the damage that, that social media or living your life under the lens of social media can do for kids. And so this idea, this idea that like so much of your life's performative is one thing. This other idea that, um, the way bullying exists now for kids, like it was never for us, you know, even in the nineties or whatever, it was never for well-dressed girls stomping down a hallway and being overtly bitchy to people. That's never quite what bullying was, but it was a little closer to that then than it is now where social media makes bullying such a different animal altogether. And even like, anyone it's almost like anyone can bully the great equalizer of the internet means that anyone can bully anyone at any given time in a class and so this season starts with uh this kid kevin who has this um nicknamed Shitstay McLean that he got only simply because at a capture the flag game he happened to sit in mud as a kid it was like i forget it was like what sixth grade or something like that like uh, a much younger age sat in mud and someone took a photo of it and because that photo exists that social media aspect of the bullying, it wasn't just like, did you hear Kevin sat in mud on the field and everyone just sort of forgets it eventually. It's like that photo will always exist of that moment for that kid. And so um, that's a different kind of bullying than anything we ever had to deal with. And like having Kevin as your, you know, your prime suspect in this season makes bullying because Dylan, Dylan, as much as he was sort of like a little bit of a dummy in his class kind of looked down at him. He wasn't Dylan Maxwell in season one. Wasn't like the object of bullying per se. He was a, he was a prankster in and of himself and people said unkind things about him, but he was almost like too thick to even like feel that until the very end. You know what I mean? Whereas with Kevin, like Kevin is a bullied kid and um, you know, the fact that, Peter and Sam, our documentarians, are kind of fighting for him, makes this season much different, I think. Yeah, and then interestingly, on the other side of that, you have this character, DeMarcus, who's this star basketball player. He's brilliantly played by um, Melvin Gregg, and um, where, you know, that could go one way where he's like the bullying jock or whatever, and there is a little bit of that because he's one of the most popular kids at school. He sort of has everyone worshipping at his feet. And yet, they also show him understanding something about how to connect with people and make them feel good, whether it's giving them a nickname or having a sort of, you know, pers- you know, personalized handshake with them. And, and he wants to, he wants people to feel good. You see him cheering on the girls basketball team before his game, you know? Um, so I think that like any time you could go for the easy trope, you know, with Kevin could be an easy trope. The star athlete, jock bully could be an easy trope. And the show doesn't do that. It, it understands that like, not in all cases, but sometimes, sometimes kids in high school were just like one way and they were jerks and, you know, or whatever. But this show, I think, understands that there's like a totality to anyone's life, you know, and, and, and personality. And, um, you know, so it, and all that serves to be like, I, you know, I'm not as far in as you are, Joanna, or you think you finished it, but like, is that like, I don't know where this is going. Like, I don't know who is really being indicated here or spoken about, which kind of, which makes it really cool. Yeah. And I mean, the, the DeMarcus character is, is such an interesting thing because he is, as you say, he's so likable. Like he's not just the popular guy, but you hate him. He's the popular guy and you like him. You're like, I had, yeah. I had one of those, 
I mean, probably more than one, but the immediate person I think of where like they're so popular and in my school's case, like so rich and so good looking that you like want to dislike them, but then they're just nice to everyone. They have the like easy ability to be nice to everyone. And so you're like, Oh, I like them, but oh, I want to hate them, you know, sort of thing. And that's, and they're funny. Yeah, and like, yeah. you're just like, wow, you just like everything is working, you know, but that's, but that's such an interesting like dichotomy between DeMarcus and Kevin where like everything is just easy for DeMarcus and everything is so hard for Kevin. And whereas, but DeMarcus is from a different, you know, town because it's private school. And so like, um, you know, so there is an economic thing. I think there's undeniably a racial aspect to it. Like, you know, and I, I, I wonder a little bit about the show's purview, like it's, it's sort of purview, like, you know, the first season was pretty white. Mm Mm-hmm. This season less so, although, but now we're in a different socioeconomic bracket because it's a private school. So I don't know. I think the show is not ignoring these things. It's just, it's going to be interesting for me and and whoever else is going to watch this season to see how they kind of deal with that if they do. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by USA Network's limited series, The Sinner. Listen to the end of this week's show for the latest installment of Still Watching The Sinner, in which Emma Stefanski and Matt Singer discuss the seventh episode of the new season. New installments of Still Watching the Sinner can be found as bonus content at the end of Still Watching Fall TV through September 23rd. The the other thing I want to talk about is that the um the production value because of this like meta um influx of cash from Netflix the production value on season 2 is so much higher because you've got these dramatic reenactments yeah. that weren't part of season 1 and so i did talk to the guys a little bit about the challenges of that like they they face so many technical challenges in filming american vandal anyway because a lot of their footage is shot through cell phone or a lot of their information is fed to you through social media so it's they have to be really inventive uh with a lot of that stuff but then they added an extra challenge themselves which is like Okay, let's not only film an entire school of our actors, like, shitting their pants throughout the school, but then let's do a really, like, glossy black and white reenactment of the same thing in the same location, but the lighting has to be different and everything's different about it. Um, yeah. What did you, how effective was that for you? What did you think of all that? I think it's effective in that it just so specifically and brilliantly apes you know, the, the actual, these actual things, these actual true crime series that right. have become so popular in the past couple of years. Like the parody is so exact that it's kind of like staggering. I'm like, I don't know how they get it so right. Um, while also being like really funny, insightful writers of like made up characters, you know, like it'd be one thing if they were sort of from the documentary world and could kind of create that style, but like they can do that, but also do the other stuff, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just sort of in awe of it. And, um, you know, I think that it makes me appreciate that when satire is done the right way, just like how, I don't know, I get this feeling of, you know, whether it's in the reenactments or the voiceover or the drone shots or whatever, you know, all these kind of trappings of the genre, there's this like shiver of like relatability where it's thrilling, you know, just to watch how right they get it. And then everything else feels like, you know, added an added bonus. Yeah, and there's this um interesting thing that they they see a large distinction between season one and season two, and I admit that I am not a, enough of like a true crime junkie that I can like parse the nuances of it. But they're like, okay, season one is our serial season, and season two is our the jinx season, and um mm-hmm. for them that meant like 
more cliffhangers, more like every episode ends with a new revelation that like makes you want to hit play on the next episode. It's just a more like compulsively bingeable sort of And it's coy about like revealing things, you know, like it's, it's, it's less of a like real time discovery thing. Right. In the way that the first season was and the first season of Serial was, this is now like they've had time to consider, they know the end of the story and now they're sort of packaging it, you know? And I think that you can see that in a way, well, in a lot of ways, but I think also like they're aping a different style than last season, uh, with the interviews, which are very like presentational, you know, backdrop. It's, they're very carefully lit. It's not like on the fly conversations with people. So I think, I don't know, it's interesting. It's tremendously effective. And I'm curious if they're going to try to like experiment with, um, a different, a different style every season. Um, how far do you feel like American Vandal can go? Like how many seasons of American Vandal do you want to have exist? I mean, maybe three. I would say, you know? I would say max four would sort of be yeah. what I would think because like yeah. I, I, I do think that there are other things that they could do, but then I think there's, there's a ceiling on it eventually. Um, and I think the, the, the way in which I, I'm impressed, um, just by switching to a Catholic school and just by really shifting, um, the, the kind of kid who's been accused of this crime. Um, I am impressed with how much they've done to distinguish season two from season one. Um, but maybe like, you know, when season eight is airing and we're still huge fans, you and I can eat our words. But at the, right now, I would say like four seasons and I, w- I would be done. My idea, and they're, they're free to steal it and or they already thought of it and or it's a bad idea, uh, is that in the final season, uh, Peter and Sam should be the suspects in some sort of crime. So. Oh, that's fun. Um, yeah. yeah. And those kids are so good, those actors. I mean, this seems like a perfect opportunity to go to our interview with Tyler Alvarez. Hello. Hey, Joanna. How are you? So I wanted to kick off by um, asking you, you know, with it all in your rear view, were you surprised at all by the reaction to season one of American Vandal? Yes and no, because when I read the, the pilot, I was like, this is going to be great. But I didn't expect it. I, I thought that it would it, that it would get attention and traction, especially with like the whole true crime that that's so popular right now. So I was surprised by like you know the Critics' Choice and 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 all the Emmy nomination and everything after that. That I didn't expect to be so young and to be able to be on a show like this is so is so gratifying. I know a show about dicks and shit, right? And I'm saying how happy I am to be on it <laughs> and how humbling it is, but it's true. When did you know that you and Griffin would be the only ones continuing on to season two? Um, I actually knew that from the beginning, from the, from signing the contract. Um, yeah, I knew that right from the, from the get go before we even stepped on set or met anybody, even before I met Griffin. Even knowing that you guys were going to be the only ones to carry on over to season two, was it odd to mm-hmm. start filming season two and not have Jimmy or anyone else there with you? Yeah, it was. You know, it really was. It, it, it was sad because it's like you create this little family and then everybody leaves. What What was your reaction when you found out that the theme of season two was going to be shit, I'll say? <laughs> I started laughing. Yeah. 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 Do, and you never had any doubts. You're like, is this gonna, how is this gonna go over? Or were you just like, after everyone was okay with dicks being the central theme of season one, you're like, we can do whatever we want and it'll be fine. Yeah. To be honest, I was a little concerned about season one. 
I was like, I hope people get it. I really was. I'm like, if we sell you on the crime, then we're gold. I was talking to Tony and, and the dance about something else. And I mentioned that the character of Kevin actually reminds me of a lot of guys mm-hmm. that I went to high school with. And they were so pleased because they were like, we were so worried that this guy like wouldn't uh, land. Yeah, that, that was, <laughs> but like, that's so funny because that was my immediate reaction. I was like, I'm so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> so did you not know, have you never met a, a Kevin before? I have. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we really captured bullying like in, in this time very specifically because it, it really isn't you're not getting shoved in a locker anymore yeah and you know i've even experienced some stuff like that you know in in middle school one of the major set pieces of season one of course is nana's party and in this season you've got the skip day party mm-hmm. are you bummed that you don't get to be part of these like big yeah. huge shoots ever yes 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 every time i'm not kidding you I'm like, I don't get to have any fun besides hold a freaking camera and ask some damn questions <laughs> and then freaking dig through some freaking poop. <laughs> yeah, no, damn it. I do. I really do want to be in one of those scenes, but, you know, Peter won't do that. So whatever. You should try to sneak it into your writer for season three or something like that. Like I get to be in a major party scene. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, I mean, come on, like, <laughs> Peter crowd raving. Could we imagine that? Can you imagine the footage we would get? <laughs> um, you mentioned the digging through poop scene. Is that Was that the hardest thing for you to film? That was the most exciting thing for me to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I absolutely loved doing that. Um, I, I think it's made out of clay. You deliver this great um, sort of meditative speech at the end about social media, about what it's like to live in the glare of social media. Do you, uh, do you Tyler agree with um, like what Peter is saying there? Oh, 150,000%. And I really, I, I, when I, when I was doing it, I I think I actually even choked up at one point when I was delivering that speech, because I really felt like I was, being the vessel for such an important message to to this generation and i and i really hope that message sticks with people because it really stuck with me and i just to even be able to deliver that was just it was so important you know we all do it we all try and cover up an instagram or just show people what they want to see so yeah i'm i'm it did change me and like especially the one of the lines at the end where he's saying, you know, it's important to have people in your life who know you for who you are and love you without the mask. And and that's important, too, because as an actor, you know, you kind of have to put on sometimes, you know, a, a you got to be on a lot. And recently I'm, I'm starting to not be on and just completely be me and, and not and I feel like I have to filter what I say and stuff like that. Being vulnerable is scary. It just is. Because then, you know, people may not like you. Yeah. Well, you you talked about how, you know, filming this season or or filming that that sort of speech has changed your perspective on that. Overall, like having worked on American Vandal both seasons, how would you say your um, thoughts about social media or the digital age have changed? 
I wouldn't say that they've changed. I'd say it made me more aware. It's kind of like, you know, something in the back of your head and you know, you're supposed to do it, but you're too afraid to do it. And then when someone says it, it's like, yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, you're supposed to whatever, clean your room. And then hearing your mom tell you, it's like, go clean your damn room. I mean, this is a terrible analogy, but <laughs> let's just roll with it. Um, uh, yeah, it's just, it just, it kind of put it in my face. It made it unavoidable. Mm-hmm. You talked about your own experience sort of in middle school with bullying. And I'm just wondering, you know, what you think yeah. or what you think or hope American Vandal could show kids who are watching sort of uh, about bullying yeah. and about how to navigate that. Yeah. I, I, and that was one of the things that I, when I was reading this season, is I, was, I, I hope that people, you know, realize that. And it's just how subtle it could be and, and, and what bullying can do to children and to people. And again, it's not the pushing the locker. It's the, it's the subtle things of, you know, um, the fruit ninja or making fun of someone for shit stay McLean. Like, those are the things that sting nowadays. That's what's that. That's the, the form of bullying that occurs. So I, I, I really hope that it, it, it can maybe wake some people up that maybe they shouldn't be doing stuff like that. Um, because ultimately, ultimately I think that's what art is meant to do. I think art, whether it's about dicks and shit or whether it's about some serious topic or whatever, I think it's meant to affect and stimulate, change people's minds that really can get to people. I think people are a lot, I think a lot, everyone's vulnerable, whether we admit it or not. You know, the guys talked to me a little bit about how, um, the, the sort of meta Netflix premise, um, that exists in season two is sort of their idea of, of how the show can go forward and exist for many, many, many seasons. And I'm wondering, you know, if they've talked to you about future seasons and then also like how many seasons of American Vandal would you want to do as Peter? I would, it's so funny. I would want to do maybe four, maximum eight. Um, I love this character mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I love this role and I love solving crimes and, and especially I love this team. Like I really do. So I would, I would work on this for as long as I can. I, I, I love this project. I love the people. Um, but I, and, and, and this could last for a long time because it's constantly different. We're not, we're not feeding into the same storylines. It's always going to be different and fresh and new. And there's so much in the documentary world to play with. So I, 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 I would say sweet number would be three or four, like high, holy crap, literally would be eight. Should the last season be Peter and Griffin are suspects in a crime? I would love that, please. I would freaking love that. And then you get to go to a party. I would love that. <laughs> Yes, and I get to go to a party and do something stupid, yeah. and then I get to be interviewed. Yeah, like I'm being now. <laughs> this is all these interviews are so meta for me too now. So I'm like, because like I see how like, because like when I'm interviewing certain uh, my subjects or my suspects, and they go off on a tangent, and then I have to say something to kind of bring them back to the question to get them to answer. And like that happens to me a lot in interviews. They're like, ask me a question, and then I go off on a tangent. And I see them bringing me back to it. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing. I know your game. 
Like, I do this all the time. Oh, no. And then asking the hard question. <laughs> all of our secrets. And getting deep with it. All of our secrets. Oh, oh yeah. Well, um, I hope you keep acting instead of becoming a journalist, but uh, I will be looking out for you either Oh, way. no, yeah. Acting's going to be the first. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you again for the time. I, I really appreciate it, Tyler. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so that is our, our ringing endorsement of American Vandal season two. I think it's getting more, um, you know, mixed reviews than season one did. I think for some people, the like, it was, you know, one, one shit joke too far or something like that. Um, but I, I, I really like that the, that the guys did not, um, shy away from, from the dicks. Like, just because they won a Peabody award and Marsha Clark was watching season one, they're just like, yeah, but we're still, this is still the show we are. So this is what right. we're going to do. Um, yeah. So we recommend American Vandal. It's, um, it's not that long. It's not that much of an investment. If you're worried about time, great show, watch it. Richard, until next week, where can people find you? Well, hopefully not, you know, shitting all over a high school cafeteria. <laughs> Uh, no, I'll, I'm as ever on uh, Twitter at Rylaws and on VF.com and yourself. Um, I'm also on VF.com, but I will heartily recommend you read all of Richard's coverage of the Toronto Film Festival and the Telluride Film Festival and all the like great, great movies that he's seen and written so thoughtfully about over on our website. Find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and we will see you next week. It looks like they were poisoned. There's no reason Julian would do something like this. He's a 13-year-old boy. What did you do to your parents? They died. He's so far beyond anything you can understand. He wasn't supposed to hurt Hello and welcome to Still Watching The Sinner, brought to you by USA Network. I'm Emma Stefanski, the weekend editor for Vanity Fair. And I'm Matt Singer, the editor of ScreenCrush.com. We're here today to talk about part seven of the second season of The Sinner, which airs on USA on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern. This is the penultimate episode of the season, and it revealed a ton of details about Julian's kidnapping. Plus, he gets kidnapped like two more times. Uh, So let's dive in. Let's talk about it. Um, basically we start off with Ambrose, our hero again, uh, and he's in the hotel room in which those two people died in the first episode. Mysteriously, he ended up there after he had a long conversation with Vera and he has no idea how he got there. And now it seems like he's just, he's like living there now. It looks like, Pretty much. It seems like he's just hanging out. It seems like he was just like, all right, I guess this is a fine room to stay in. Just has two murders that occurred here <laughs> he's just rolling with it might as well might as well just stay here now because i burned my welcome at the uh at the novaks so <laughs> might as well just stay here i guess meanwhile we've got the cops raiding mosswood because julian is missing he was taken from the youth home that he was at and they end up arresting vera uh, even though she doesn't know where he is Ambrose goes over to the group home to see Julian's bedroom to see like how he could have gotten out or how someone could have gotten in to take him. And he sees that Julian's written his phone number on the wall. Uh, And the guy who sort of takes care of the kid said that he seemed disassociated uh, that night when he was taken. 
And they also find sunflower seeds, which I thought was really odd. Yeah, that was like the clue. There was there was a couple of I mean, they could almost you could almost tell me later on that they were like deliberately left because they were so <laughs> breadcrummy, I would say. Oh, yeah. He finds the the sesame seed or the whatever sunflower seeds and that leads him out to the uh, parking lot and there was the van that was parked out there which belonged to Marin. Yeah. And and then later he in the woods where they were running um, he finds the the belt, the like the the nun belt the that cincture. has five knots in it, that symbolize poverty, chastity, obedience, enclosure, and detachment. Uh, and that is a very, you know, that's a very specific thing that he finds, and that leads him to the the gray daughters. I love that. <laughs> the uh, the detail of the gray daughters, which is where Marin has been staying for the last three years while she was kind of cleaning up her life. So those are, you know, those, those are very pointed uh, clues. They're, they're hard to misinterpret. They're like, they're very like, they're almost like arrows pointing in one direction. So um, I don't know. I, it wouldn't shock me if in the final episode we discover there's maybe more to some of that than meets the eye. It seemed pretty convenient that he like, he found one thing and then he found the next thing and then the next thing. Like it was very, there was a set trail that he followed and he, you know, got to the end where he's supposed to be. Uh, but yeah, right. And on, on this show, sometimes things that look very trail-like are misleading on purpose. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so we find out that Marin was in this convent for a bit, uh, recovering from, I guess, some sort of addiction that she was going through. She was going through a lot after she left Mosswood, uh, but she left a few weeks ago, uh, and her father apparently came looking for her recently, which. Uh, the sure. father who is the guy with the ponytail. I don't think it's her real father. It is yeah. the guy who was from Mosswood pretending pretending to be her father to collect her things to hide something. Yeah. Um, and so we flash back. I think we flash back to Mosswood again uh, to her coming back and trying to get Vera to give Julian to her or back to her. And Vera kind of refuses because she's like, you're not his mom like you are but you know legally you're not and emotionally you're not uh and so she makes this plan with bess for bess to take julian so that she can like connect with marin hand julian off and marin and julian can go live together so the whole plan was marin's all along which is insane yeah it's uh there's there's i mean that was sort of the main kind of twist in this episode although there's still a lot of a lot of questions which i think we're going to get to in a little bit like questions we still need answers there's one episode left <laughs> not a lot of time they're gonna have to be explaining a lot of stuff in this last episode because i still got a lot of questions about what's going on here that i need i need answers i'm like ambrose i need answers <laughs> and so there's some stuff that especially in this last episode they're like i have more questions now than i had before like this finale is going to have to do some work um, yes, yes. This episode did sort of raised a lot more questions than it did, even though it kind of revealed some stuff about Marin and Julian and, you know, ha- what happened to Julian in the last episode and why he was taken and also the, the that sort of hooded figure, which we, we speculated about last time and it turned out to be Marin and whether this this – uh, hooded figure had had appeared multiple times in the past whether it was a dream or whether it was always real whether it was sometimes a dream we kind of batted that around and it seems like 
that there were real visitations, but perhaps that part of it was like that from the perspective of a sleeping child, it was sort of like it was enhanced nightmarishly in a way. It was like someone coming into your room really happens, but you're half awake and you kind of imagine it to be scarier or weirder than it actually was. Mm -hmm. Or like the first time it happens, it sort of becomes this weird trauma subconsciously. And then he kept thinking about it. Like when he was asleep, his brain just like kept bringing it up. Um, Yeah. And making it super creepy when really it's his mom the whole time. Uh, So Marina Julian, uh, do the runaway they get on a train and julian kind of has a breakdown when he realizes what's been going on um marin calls heather to tell her to like you know please you know give us a break give us some time you know what's going on like come on you have to you have to help me out and then uh marin and julian get to this place where they're staying and marin calls somebody to say that they're there um, and at the end of the episode, it's revealed that whoever that person was on the phone, I'm assuming it was the person who was on the other end of the line, uh, shot her dead and took Julian right. for themselves. Right. R.I.P. Marin. Man. Now she's dead. Now she's actually dead. Yeah. <laughs> we were, you know, suspecting maybe this whole time she is. And now, yeah, she's gone. Yes, very sad. Man. But right. I mean, I think we're I think you're I I totally agree. We're, I think the sort of red herring there is we're supposed to assume because they show the the gun several times. They show Julian looking at the gun, nervous about the gun. Mm-hmm. And then there's that that, that sort of like lo- long looming, very effective uh, zoom in tracking shot kind of deal on the gun. I think we're meant to they want us to think maybe, you know, cuz Julian of course is the killer from the very first episode. It's like has he struck again, essentially? <laughs> but I, I'm I'm sort of leaning in your direction, agreeing with you that, yeah, it seems like whoever this mystery person on the other end of that line that was talking to Marin, that that's probably the actual killer of Marin. And we can talk about who we think that is in a minute. But, yeah, that was uh, that was sort of the big kind of climactic uh, cliffhanger here was uh, finding Marin – now actually definitely dead of a of a gunshot wound yeah. and i guess we don't really we don't see julian at all after that fa- that point we don't know who took him where he is where they were going um so that's still left to be resolved but let's let's get to these questions now because i feel like that's the thing is like that's what i really felt watching this episode was even as these sort of events are unfolding and there's some really good stuff in here is like feeling like there's got there's a lot of stuff that we still need answered in this last episode this is going to be a I mean, I'm, I'm very curious how all these threads are going to come together at the end. I think the number one that thing that I want to discuss or I want answered, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you can answer it for me. Emma. <laughs> I, I, you, may, you might be smarter than me. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. I'll but do it's really getting <laughs> it's really getting back to the, like what started this whole thing, this murder. Like, did julian really do it did he and 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 if he did like how did he do it how did this kid know how to poison people with this you know like obscure plant and sticking it in the tea i mean when the first episode sort of was unfolding i remember thinking like how does a kid know how to make tea let alone poison tea so to me that's like the big thing is like we've we've got to kind of loop back we saw a little bit of that in this episode um and we started to understand like why these people I mean, it seemed like they abducted him. Now it seems, you know, they were ferrying him to his mother, like we were saying. But, like, 
like what really happened in that hotel room in the in the very first place and how did it happen to me that's like the number one thing i need to know and i think uh my main question is like what would have prompted julian to think that killing these people or like what he thought killing meant uh was the right response to this situation because he even said i think in an earlier episode that like death to him like the way that he's been taught about it is like an opportunity for some sort of rebirth like he kind of thought i think he sort of thought that they would come back in some way um and obviously they're not going to do that (laughs) uh right because that's not how life works um so i really i want to know where he learned that from i mean i assume it could be vera it could be somebody else uh and i don't i don't think it's out of their own possibility that he did it but at the urgings instructions or even perhaps you know let's not forget the whole, all those the weird the work the 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 sessions at mosswood and the fact that you know uh, ambrose randomly woke up in in that motel room which he then decided what the heck i'm just gonna stay in the murder room but you know there, there's there's definitely been these hints that there's almost like you know mind control maybe going on over there so it could it be that someone sort of like programmed Julian like Manchurian candidate style to uh, to do this? I don't think that's completely out of the realm of the possibility. And that's, you know, like that's sort of connected to another question I know we both had, which is like, how did Ambrose wind up in that hotel room, not remember how he got there? And, you know, later after the fact, like talk to the hotel clerk who's like yeah you just came in you were fine you talked to me and then he looks at the security footage and he's just walking <laughs> he's walking around there's a lot of questions that i think connect back to the that ho- again it's all about that hotel room maybe that's just like a haunted hotel room maybe there's <laughs> something there's some bad vibes in that hotel room is that possible maybe they're in purgatory that would be a big time, twist and they're just like going through the motions <laughs> they're doing lost again <laughs> Um, yeah, I, yeah, there's, there seem to be a lot of moments in this season, especially where we're like missing time. Like there are things that happen that we don't see happen that impact things later on, but we have no idea how, because we have no idea what the thing was that actually happened. Um, which would explain a lot of, a lot of questions that we have. Um, but yeah, I really want to know what Vera or whoever did to Ambrose that made him return to this scene of the crime and then i guess feel safe there um that's very strange to me we already talked about it a little bit but i mean it's in this specific episode is who is this mystery person on the other end of the phone with marin and and also you know like that gun which is so key to the to the episode and what happens in that in that final scene like why i mean she could i guess could just have a gun because she's paranoid or nervous but why like <laughs> to me it seemed like a, a, a another like question that was being raised is like why is she so paranoid why does she have a gun uh where did she get the gun and and will that perhaps loom larger in the next episode as well so that that, that to me is all the other kind of big uh, question mark hanging out there. I don't know if you have any specific theories. Obviously, we can talk about my ongoing kooky theory that Heather's <laughs> dad, played by Tracy Letts, is like somehow either involved or maybe the mastermind of all of this. And uh, I did think it was notable that he does not appear in this episode. Uh, yeah, he he's is nowhere totally to be found. MIA. And, you know, we don't have any inside information, but to me, it's like that looks to me like it could be a bit of misdirection. Like you think that he is 
inconsequential to the story that he's just been this sort of supporting character to add sort of dimension to the Heather character and of course he knows Ambrose too and to help you understand the town but to me it could it could be that misdirection of you think that he's this very uh, minor character who who and I don't necessarily know why but he could be engineering all of this what do you, what do you think cuz you you have been you know you've been listening to my crazy ravings through uh quite a few episodes now what do you think well i don't think that they're that crazy anymore um oh, actually oh, oh, oh. i think you're probably right i'm just gonna go yes. ahead and say it because okay uh the fact I'm that listening. We, the fact that we don't see jack tracy Letts character in this episode and the fact that we never actually saw lionel jeffries die even after he was sort of he was given that tea by vera which we know is sort of her mo um, but we never actually see him dead. And I think that that is a big misdirection because the whole time, if you're just like casually paying attention to the show, you think that this mysterious person who is hunting Marin and Julian is going to be Lionel Jeffries. Right. Because you don't see his death. And so you think like, oh, it's a, you know, it's, he's, he's still around. He's still there. But I think it's a big double bluff because I think that it's Jack. Uh, somehow, for some reason, he's obsessed with this kid. He wants the kid. And uh, he's going to do everything he can to get it, including, like, allowing his daughter to get involved in the case so that she can, like, tell him all about it every night at dinner. (laughs) Right. We've talked about that on previous episodes when he was around. It was like he was always kind of snooping around, very casually trying to hear how the investigation was going and also kind of trying to, like, shut it down whenever he could. Like, I don't want to look at pictures. I want ice cream. You know, like that kind (laughs) of stuff where he just seems like kind of a lovably cranky dad, but maybe he's just very good at being secretly sinister. But, yeah, I mean, Lionel Jeffries, the guy who was the head of Mosswood before Vera – what exactly happened to him? That's another big question that we don't know about. And and sort of connected to that is that body that they dredged up from the lake is like, what's what? What? Uh, who is that? It's obviously not that's Marin. A, because it's she's... not Marin. Right. We thought it was possibly probably Marin. But now that's that's off the table, too. So there's another question. <laughs> uh, another poor It'll dead be interesting person. To see, yeah, we got We have a lot of stuff. Still out there that we're – I'm really excited because, I mean, we have these theories, but there's – you know, I'm not expecting most of them to be right. So I'm just kind of really uh, excited to see how all of this gets kind of wrapped up together in the span of one episode. It's not a, not a ton of time to uh, do all this. Do we? Is there any other questions you have left over that we haven't talked about? I feel like this is a lot of stuff that we've already <laughs> kind of run through. Uh, I was thinking a little bit about, um, I think Julian said this also in an earlier episode that Vera can read minds. Um, and I think that maybe was his way of saying she can influence people and what people think and what people do. Um, so Mm. I think she still has a huge part to play, which I also, I think that's why she really wasn't in this episode very much is because she's gonna come back guns blazing metaphorically or literally. Uh, in episode eight and really make some stuff happen. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, Vera Vera didn't have a huge role in this one. She was in it. You know, it wasn't like she was completely absent like like uh, Tracy Letts, but she definitely had a sort of a smaller part in this one. And I, mm-hmm. I thought the same thing. I thought that that was sort of a, a prelude to a much more involved uh, final episode. Although maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part because I just love that character and I enjoy when she's involved and you know we've 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 seen so many different layers to her where we you know she seemed like the evil cult leader and then she was much more sympathetic and then in this one you know there's this added twist where she refuses you know it's not her 
Julian is not her son, but she like refuses to give him up to uh, to her real mom, to his real mom. Uh, and so that uh, raises all kinds of questions, more questions, so many questions uh, about about exactly, you know, like who is behind, who's the who's the evil mastermind here? You know, like who is the one pulling all these strings? There's a lot of strings being pulled and it's possible that there are multiple people pulling strings independently of one another, I suppose. But, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that still needs to be answered here. It's going to be a very, very interesting season finale. Yeah, I got to say, I really can't wait to see how all of this ties together, because, like, you know, everyone we've talked to has been really excited uh, about the end of the show and like for people to see it. So um, that's really got me hyped up. I do have one question that I was going to ask about because last episode you said that the one thing that you really wanted to see uh, in the last bit of this season is more from Julian because that actor, Alicia, is great. He's very emotive. He's very good at like being afraid and being horrified. Um, So I wanted to ask, like, did you get did you get what you asked for? Was he did you get enough of Julian in this episode or do you want even more? I mean, I wouldn't mind even more. He is definitely more involved in this episode. I would say, though, the episode was really like the the, the star of the episode was Marin. I mean, mm-hmm. um, if we're seeing him, it's because she is driving the action and she's the one who kidnaps him and is trying to start this relationship with him. And and so uh, it's kind of a two hander between them. So I but I, I loved seeing him with with her and watching i mean just i mean he doesn't even have a lot of dialogue it would almost be interesting to go and count the number of lines that he has in the in this episode it's not a lot it's a lot of just reacting to her and to you know being abducted and and not trusting her escaping from the from the the van and running into the woods and you know just when she tries to give him the i guess like the chocolate or whatever Mm. and his his reaction to that and how fearful he is and eating it and like just his eyes on like how much he conveys in his eyes and his the distrustfulness and the kind of that tinge of hopefulness in there as well like i was really glad that we did get more of of him in this episode but i uh, you know i would not have minded you know sort of more of a focus on him i guess the other nice thing in this one about him was the couple of brief snippets of that interview between him and Ambrose. There's like those flashbacks to the, to the, to the, I guess like the group home that he was staying in where Ambrose interviewed him. And we see some very short snippets. I guess they're sort of flashbacks from Ambrose, Ambrose's perspective. And it is sort of interesting how all of these kind of flashbacks are um, sort of of Julian. They're not really from his perspective. They're like other people's perspectives on him. Uh, which is sort of interesting because he kind of remains a little bit of a mystery and a blank slate as a result. But yeah, I mean, I was glad that he got more screen time in this one. He really is kind of a character who things happen to. Uh, and I really, I would like for him to have a little bit more agency in the finale. I think that's my my big wish. <laughs> right. I mean, even whatever happens in that, you know, the, 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 the big last scene, we don't know what happened, whether he did or didn't. Uh, shoot Marin or whether he was you know involved in any way whether he tried to stop it or who knows that's another big question that's gonna have to be answered uh, if if unfortunately it's a 555 number but I did catch you know you mentioned Harry's number on the wall I did mm-hmm. have to write I wrote it down it's 555-0163 I, you know you can't call it because it's a 555 number <laughs> but 
I guess you could try and see what happened. You also mentioned one other inter- one other little thing that I noticed as well, which was there's a lot of bird imagery in this episode. There are a lot of birds. A the, lot of birds. The murmurations yeah. were very cool. Yeah, I like the, that. the beginning. There's the huge flock of birds when Ambrose is on the roof of the group home. There's a more birds flying overhead, like a you know like a migrating, you know like a V of birds flying away. I don't know what we necessarily want to make of that, although, I mean, I guess sort of these images of, like, birds migrating or escaping kind of echoes what's going on with Marin and Julian. She's trying to get him into Canada, trying to escape through uh, through this, like, I guess, like, an, an, a Native American reservation or something. I, I don't know if that's a real thing that you can just, like, cross a border on a reservation. <laughs> it's I, like I, international I, waters. Yeah, I don't know the rules. I'd be, I'd be, intru- I gotta do, I didn't do my research on that. I'll have to do that before the next episode to see if that's a legit thing. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, that would be interesting uh, to know. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, Mambrose is so in tune with like the natural world, like uh, in to an unusual degree. And I, I can't help but wonder like if that knowledge is going to come in handy, um, at the culmination of all of this stuff. Like if he's going to know, you know, something else about nature that's going to connect to all these crazy things that people are doing. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it would be nice if, if his knowledge of plants came in handy once again. And that's it for this week's episode of Still Watching The Sinner. Join us again next Sunday, September 23rd, after Still Watching. Joanna and Richard will be back as usual, and we will be discussing episode eight, the season finale of The Sinner. This episode was edited and produced by Brandon Harrison.